Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient Podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. And today I'm joined by Lee Weiner, Chief Innovation Officer at Rapid7. Lee was a web developer, then a sales engineer in cybersecurity. He moved into product development, product management, and ultimately product leadership. These days, Lee is the guy who leads Rapid7's emerging products team and also leads the development of their cloud platform. Lee and I cover a lot here. Vulnerability management, misunderstandings on Seam and SOAR, what the world of Seam and SOAR will bring. So big data and the behavior and threat analysis and also productivity bumps that we can expect. There's lots here, so let's get over to the interview. Welcome to the Get Star Resilient podcast. I'm Garahara, and I'm joined today by Lee Weiner, the Chief Innovation Officer at Rapid7. How are you doing today, Lee? Good, Gar. Good to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome to see you. We've crossed paths many times over the years, so it's uh, it's lovely to get to catch up with you, um, but also really looking forward to the conversation. You're east coast of the US, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm here in, uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, last time we saw each other, I think I was in... Um, I was in Australia, and and the weather was uh, was was probably a lot better than it is here right now. So, a little bit warmer. I won't show you on the webcam what it's doing outside. It's it's pretty nice today. We're in that beautiful shoulder season where the humidity is starting to drop. Blue skies, beaches just out the window. Yeah, it's, trust me, it's it's okay here. <laughs> yeah, the snow is the snow is almost gone. It's there's just a little bit left, but uh, it's we're hopefully starting to turn the corner. Good times. Hey, but here's a question for you. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of snowmobiles over in the East case of the U.S. Is that a new thing? It seems like a bunch of people are getting into it. Yeah, I don't know if it's a new thing. I think um, I think more people are doing it because there's this desire to, you know, be outside more because of the pandemic. It's safer with, you know, your, if, even if you have a friend or two you want to get together with. So I think there's more people kind of venturing into the outdoors. And yeah, snowmobiling, is becoming uh, a little bit. I, I think it's it's definitely picking up. Uh, my sister actually and her family went snowmobiling this winter, and yeah, it's it's definitely picking up. Very cool. Yeah. So you know, swings and roundabouts. We don't get to do that in Australia. So you know. So Lee, I, I'd love to hear. Um, obviously, we know each other, but for the audience, um, you're, you're sitting as the chief innovation officer, so obviously senior leadership in Rapid Seven in a fairly well-known uh, global company in cybersecurity. What was your journey? How did you get to to where you are today? You know, I started my career back in the mid '90s, um, building uh, web applications. Right, it was the beginning of the web, and you know, I I, I was focused on. I worked with. Uh, I worked for a publishing company that was bringing um, content to the web, right? It was, it was, uh, it was actually a lot of fun. And that's kind of how I started my career in technology. And then I, I worked in, um, uh, for some vendors in cybersecurity, uh, mostly in originally in a sales engineering capacity, which was great to work with customers and understand the problems they were having. Uh, but that led me to want to kind of get focused on the product side. And so I moved into product development and then product leadership and product management. And eventually into kind of general um, product and engineering and leadership. Uh, and it's been, um, you know, it's been great. You know, for me, it, my, you know, passion around it has been, you know, the space and the problem. And, you know, how do we, how do we really help our customers through this challenging dynamic that they continue to be in? Yeah, absolutely. And, and challenging is definitely the key, the key words there. What, what does a chief innovation officer do? Like, so day-to-day, you know, responsibilities, it's, um, 
you know, in my head, cybersecurity is such a rapidly evolving space that the the weight of innovation, I'd imagine, weighs heavy, or maybe it doesn't. But I'd love to hear like what the role is. You know, I really focus on how do we bring new things to life at Rapid Seven. Um, so, you know, I work I work with our kind of emerging product groups that are trying to solve new problems for our customers uh, and lead those teams uh, to really help them kind of hone their product market fit and then get the solution into customer hands and then, you know, scale it from there. Uh, I also lead the development of our uh, our cloud platform broadly. So we've got a platform that I'm sure we can talk about, but it, it weaves together our, our products for our customers to give them a better experience. So I lead that. Um, so it's really around, you know, as you said, um, you know, we've got to continue to invest in innovation to solve this problem because the attackers are definitely innovating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we as defenders, uh, we need to innovate um, as well, obviously, and we need to do that better and more effectively than they are. Uh, so that's really what I'm focused on uh, helping us do here at RepSet. And you guys do a lot, right? You've got a solution set that covers so many different areas of vulnerability, risk management, threat detection, app security, uh, SecOps. And when I think about organizations like yours, there's obviously lots on offer and lots of things that you can help with. But also there's limited budget, but it's, I mean, that's risk management. You get X, you know, finite amount of dollars and you got to go spend them somewhere. What's your take on that? Like I've got a limited budget. Where do I start? Yeah. Well, you know, it really depends. You're, that's the answer you, you probably would expect, but it does really depend, right, on where the customer is in their journey. You know, I think for us, um, we want to meet our customers where they are, right? They have they've got a problem and, and, you know, we're here to help them solve it. So, you know, look, some of our customers come to us and they're, you know, maybe earlier in their maturity stage and they are just getting started with cybersecurity, um, a cybersecurity program. And, you know, one of the things you want to do right out of the gate is you want to get visibility into your environment and things like vulnerability management really help you there. Right. And so some people start with us there and they, um, you know, they, they kind of start uh, building that program up. And then from there, maybe they want to go detect and respond to threats, right? So we've got a SIM solution for them there. And, you know, then maybe as they migrate their infrastructure to the cloud, they want to think about cloud security. So for us, it's really about, like, where are you on that maturity curve, right? It's less about, you know, where can you get the biggest bang for your buck? I mean, um, you know, again, I think it, it does depend on uh, the organization and just kind of where they are and, and how we can help them. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, and, and again, we try to work with them to continue to help them evolve and then they can they can consume more of our solutions or, you know, or they can stay with the solutions they have. We, we try to be quite uh, open and have a diverse ecosystem as, as, as you know. Yeah, no, definitely get that. And I suppose, you know, organizations, size dependent, resource dependent, it's gonna have a pretty big, uh, and material impact on how far along a security major, uh, maturity journey they will be. Like, how do you see that stuff play out in terms of small to medium to larger enterprises? And, and the context for that question is, is some of the supply chain challenges that are happening were, were kind of all tied together, right? And, it, you know, what happens at a, a small sort of organization that feeds into a medium-sized organization, maybe as a supplier, uh, or right into enterprise, like we're all tied together, right? So how we all do security matters. Like what's your take on that as far as helping those smaller organizations? 
Yeah, so we absolutely want to help organizations advance their security for really any type of company, right? And and to your point, I think one of the things that um, one of the things that's happened, right, in the last we've been doing this right for a while, and if you look at the last ten years, especially five, six, seven years ago, there was a lot of focus on the larger organizations because, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, look, there's a lot of um, talent there, there's a lot of budget there. And so vendors were, were building for a lot of that. And that makes sense. I, I, I get it. But I think as we've, as we've seen in the last seven, eight years, these threats have been more uh, pervasive to a lot of different kinds of companies, right? Whether it's retail companies or healthcare companies, manufacturing companies, and some of those organizations, to your point, they don't have as big of a team. And so, you know, for us, we are really focused on how do we make those kinds of teams more productive? Like, mm. how do we make them more effective? They might have, you know, 10 or 15 people on their security team, whereas, you know, a larger company might have a few hundred. So how can we kind of power those teams with more, you know, tools and technologies that enable them to be more productive? Um, but I think on the, on to your point about the maturity cycle, you know, as we know, there are large companies that aren't as mature as they want to be. Right. Size isn't a good proxy always for maturity. Um, And I think, you know, we'll continue to see that. And I think, you know, again, we we continue to focus on how can we how can we help companies of all types? We have very large customers and we have a lot of mid-sized customers and some smaller ones. And so, you know, how do we really um, how do we build and design for that that broader uh, uh, that broader impact for the broader market opportunity? So, yeah, maturity is we talk about it a lot and. yeah, I don't think size is a good proxy for it, for sure. Yeah, definitely agree with you on that one. So in, in terms of collaboration, so one of the things we're seeing a lot of, in, and, and here I'm thinking in those smaller organizations where they're looking for wins through technology because they can't win through people. Um, they're too small. They maybe can't pay for the headcans. And even if they could, half the time they, they can't find the people. Um we're seeing a fairly large shift in the industry towards like how to, how to win with technology. And here I'm thinking about integrations, uh, point solution integrations, you know, thread intel sharing into Seam, into SOAR, um, taking some of the workload away from security analysts so that, you know, Seam is doing it and, and SOAR is doing it. You know, obviously you play heavily in that space. I'd, I'd be keen to kind of get your thoughts on how that plays forward in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think, um, you know, if you look back at, at, you know, history, you'd say the kind of this, the early phase of SIM 10 years ago was really focused on compliance, right? Mm-hmm. I need to comply with a, with a regulation, uh, you know, whether that's for things like PCI or Sarbanes-Oxley or various other regulations, you needed to audit certain activity, you know, privileged user activity, uh, cardholder data, uh, access to hard- cardholder data, things like that. And so SIMs were really structured for that. And what happened was, we saw this right in 2012, 2013, 2014, the threat landscape evolved. And I think a big part of that evolution has been the use of technology by companies. So companies are now using their, their use of modern technology has really scaled, right? If you think about mobility, you know, 10 years ago, then you get into the era of software as a service applications, maybe six, seven years ago and continued now. And now you get into cloud infrastructure. You know, all of that technology is great for innovation. It's amazing for innovation for for employees and for companies, but it brings a level of risk for security professionals, right? And they're 
they're kind of blinded by that or they can't, they don't get the visibility into that that they want. And so I think what, what happened a lot in that kind of six, seven years ago was people were trying to apply old technology, old security solutions to new technologies. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, we created a lot of noise. People had challenging triaging alerts, you know, they couldn't find that signal. Um, And so what, you know, what we believe going forward is, look, we need to build analytics that really enable security professionals to, you know, get their job done. I mean, we can't give them 10,000 alerts a day. That's just, that's non um, productive. And so how can we create more effective analytics and effective, um, uh, you know, automation within that, that allows them to kind of, you know, get to the, 50, 100 alerts that they really need to investigate? And then how can we make those investigations more effective for them? And so that's really where we think this is really heading towards, which is a much more analytic-driven system. You know, we've got to look at behavioral analysis, threat analysis. Um, That's a big part of that. And I think, you know, to your point, you need more data, you need more context around that, right? I mean, this, this is becoming a really like, I don't like to use like the cliche is like, it's a big data problem. Right. But it is yeah. a big data problem. Yep. Right. I think that's the other thing that we saw too, is like a lot of the, the accessibility of these solutions hadn't really been for a 5,000, 10,000, even a 10,000 person company, right. They were for the larger companies because think about all the storage and compute you had to bring in to run these kinds of things. Right. And so now you know, if you can deliver that using cloud technology, we, we do that, right? A company that can't manage that, can't operationalize that on-prem, well, they can definitely use cloud infrastructure to do this. And so I think that's been a big shift too, which it just opens up the usage of these kinds of solutions to more of those kind of mid-sized organizations or mid-maturity organizations, right? Um, and I think we'll see more focus, you know, I mean... 10 years ago, security technologies weren't built for usability, right? Now we're seeing a lot of usability being built in. Yeah, as it should be. Yeah, it it does seem like there's a bit of a leveling happening through cloud and the ability to scale at a point where like the economics to service data storage, processing, all those things, like at some point, it it almost becomes a a sort of a finance conversation rather than security conversation because you you get to a point where you really can't service that stuff on-prem or do it yourself. You know, really, those larger companies will... Here's a question. Do you see that kind of distilling or stratifying into a few very large players? Because as you kind of roll time forwards, those economics play out and and it gets harder and harder and the the points are getting smaller and smaller. Like, where does that go? Well, I think uh, it's interesting. You know, I think the the thing that we have to remember, right, is that domain expertise in this field really matters, right? So in other words, do do you understand the threats and the behaviors um, and the attacks that are happening in the environment, right? And so for us, you know, we put a ton of time into research. We've got a bunch of analysts that look at this stuff all the time. And so we can build analytics that are purpose-driven for that problem space. Um, you know, I think that's separate from the data problem, right? To your point, you got to collect the data, got to process the data, and you got to store the data, but you also have to analyze it. I think that's where 
a lot of the value uh, needs to be delivered uh, and, you know, again, uh, will be delivered uh, to your point. I think it's great. I mean, data democratization could actually be really good for this space, right? Because it could make it easier for people to access that information. And then really the value will be, well, how well can you analyze this for me? And, you know, so that's where we spend a lot of our time um, and our focus. And on the analysis side of things, then, so you sort of get into the competition around who's got the best algorithm and and people. How do you see that play out in the future in terms of the importance of, you know, who's got the best, essentially, data scientists and people who can write amazing algorithms to do the analysis? And then do we get to a point where we don't need people? I I suspect we don't. I feel like there's always going to be a bit of supervision needed there. Yeah, I think supervised. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about AI, because people talk about AI with security a lot. I think we're a little ways away from that, right? I think mm-hmm. and machine language, I mean, machine learning, sorry, machine learning is is definitely, you know, is being used uh, to your point, but it's they're typically um, uh, models that are, are, you know, require, yeah, human uh, analysts to develop and build those things. Um, so I think we're, I think we're in a place where, um you're right. So I think the the analytics will matter, and who who can have the better approach to the detection and the analysis will be in a good position. Though I think one thing we should again, one thing we should acknowledge is that you need to understand the problem, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a, a the I think the depth and the complexity of the problem of how do you help you know, how do you detect threats and respond to threats is, um, you know, it's fairly deep. And so that kind of, are you willing to dive into the problem and think about the problem deeply and understand it, work with customers, you know, do the research on the threats, do the research on the types of attacks that are happening and really understand that deeply. So I don't think the algorithm alone, to your point, will, will necessarily win, but the, the depth and the understanding of the problem will be critical. Yeah. And, and those problems based on stuff that was happening kind of last year, some of that bigger stuff that hit in, in kind of December, you know, that felt like a change to me. I don't know how it felt to you. That that was that was really interesting times, you know, sort of December, January, probably with the two months that stood out in my mind is feeling very different and very big in terms of the world of cybersecurity. And I think, you know, at this point, most people are well aware of it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of been talked about quite a lot, but what are your and I hate using this word predictions because you know it, it just seems like crystal ball nonsense. But like you know, in your space and where you live, you're obviously talking to customers a lot. You're thinking about innovation. So you, to your point, you're thinking deeply about the problems that we're going to see. Crystal ball. Like, what what are your predictions in terms of where this stuff goes? Attacks, attack was. I think I think the thing. It's interesting that we're seeing this threat activity, um, these levels. To your point, that that's happening. I think a lot of it. Uh, well, I think, I think you'll see a continued evolution. And I think as companies, again, as companies themselves are, are using new technologies, the thing that I think that will happen is how will the, how will the threat landscape evolve around that, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, um, as cloud infrastructure is adopted more and more, you know, I think we're going to see um, threat activity be focused in that, in those kinds of environments going forward. Uh, obviously more so than we have in the past. And I think, you know, the, the, the beauty of things like cloud infrastructure is that you can innovate really quickly, right? I mean, it's phenomenal. Um, 
But as companies need to think about how they govern and control that environment and gain visibility to that environment, I think that's going to be an area where um, we're going to continue to see, uh, you know, both innovation from the from the tech economy, which is great, the technology providers, but also we just have to be aware of what uh, the threat actors can do and, and how they can um, uh, use that as a vector. And we have to provide visibility and analysis into that environment. I think, I think we're going to see, uh, we're going to see a lot, a lot of activity there. And I think some of the stuff we saw last year is somewhat indicative of that though. Um, probably not all the way there, but I, I think we'll see that. And I mean, those larger attacks, I mean, you, you've sort of talked a bit about how that's kind of changing the world of cyber, but as a, as an individual and with innovation sitting on your shoulders, like presumably that's stuff that changes your thinking. Then, you know, I don't know, did your shifting, did your thinking shift over December, January? Was it like, oh, hang on or? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, look, I think, you know, as a third party risk has always been a, has always been an issue for, for uh, companies and something we have to think about. I think, you know, is there, is there more of a, these kind of things raise awareness for these kind of things, right? And application security is part of that too, right? Um, you know, as companies look to more third-party vendors for applications and for infrastructure, you know, we need to think about how does that, um, you know, how do you think about risk around that? And so I think, I think it kind of showcases the need for some of these things, raises awareness for them. You know, I don't know if it's, you know, it, it definitely, to your point, the magnitude and scale of it, you know, sure, uh, was uh, maybe a little different. I think the the core fundamentals of it is a lot of the core things that we've been, you know, as an industry been focused on, right? You know, again, how do you understand, you know, gain visibility into your environment, understand the risk around your applications and and, and manage the, the threat activity that can get there. And so, you know, I think um, it shows that the ecosystem is diverse and complex and that, uh, that can create opportunities for these kind of threats. Yep, definitely. A, a little bit of a change of tack here, maybe. Um, you know, in your role, you get to travel a lot. And before we started recording, you know, we, we were sort of talking about uh, Belfast and Dublin and your time in Sydney. And, you know, you're, you're kind of a jet setter, Lee. You get, you get around. I'd be very keen to hear somebody who gets to kind of smoke jump into these different cities in the world of cybersecurity have you seen themes or picked up any sense of maybe cultural, how culture plays into thinking about cybersecurity and, and maybe even maturity in terms of different regions? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely would love to get back on an airplane and, and go to some of these places. I'm looking forward to that for sure. Um, the beaches of Sydney await. Yeah, exactly. It'd be great. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. So, so, there's definitely, I think there's a couple of dynamics we you, you wind up seeing. One is obviously the regulatory environment, right? That yep. I think does influence a lot of, you know, policy and cybersecurity um, initiatives, right? And so you saw that with GDPR, right? And EMEA, um, these things have been, uh, you know, we, we've 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 seen obviously some activity there. In the states, we have some a variety of privacy laws that have also kind of created some uh, increased focus there. But there are, you know, that, that's one aspect of it. The other thing that I think you see, which is interesting, is that there are some parts of the world where they might be more aggressively looking at different and new technologies, right? So, you know, in your neck of the woods, as an example, I've always found Australia to be very cloud forward, 
right? That there's a lot of cloud infrastructure being deployed in Australia. Um, and it's almost like a, a like a like a, a skip over over some of the um, technologies from five or ten years ago. Like, like, hey, let's just let's just migrate our infrastructure to the cloud. And I think, you know, that um, creates a need for well, how do you think about cloud security? How do we think about you know cybersecurity programs that are built for cloud environments? And so I think that's been interesting in, in certain parts of the world uh, as well. And then I think. Um, you know, I, I think when, when, you, when you look at, um, to your point about cultures and attitudes, uh, you know, I think there are certain environments where there's been more priority around security and privacy, right? Um, certain countries in Europe that have had more priority around this. And so they tend to take it a little bit more seriously. Um, now, the other thing you'd say is that the maturity of companies in certain regions of the world might be a little bit different, right? Some regions maybe aren't as mature from a cybersecurity standpoint, whereas like if you go to, you know, uh, you know, parts of the UK, they might be more, more uh, mature. So yeah, it definitely varies for sure. I think uh, we see that. What are your thoughts uh, as you were talking through that, you just sparked a a question in my mind. you mentioned the kind of regulatory requirements in any particular region. And, you know, one of the things I've heard conversations about is even within countries. So if I look at the U.S. where different states will have different privacy legislation and the burden of compliance becomes significant. And if you're a global organization, then it's not just the states, individual states in the U.S., it's the countries you're operating in. Like that, that just seems like we need to have a solution because... It, it's sort of it's opposite to what we want. You know, it's not going to have a good outcome for security if it's so complex. People are failing compliance. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so I think I think to your point, um, we need to get better at helping people automate their compliance programs for sure. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's, you know, I think compliance is uh, is an important part of security. Um, it does not necessarily equal security, but it's an important baseline that people need to implement. And, and there are some great things that come out of it, right? Yep. Um, but there's also a lot of mundane tasks associated with it. So how can we bring automation to that, right? To make it easier for people to comply with various regulations. And to your point, it's only getting more, more diverse. I think the other thing that's interesting, somewhat related is like how people think about data sovereignty. You know, now the data is much more, um, it's moving around a lot more. Mm-hmm. Data sovereignty definitely plays into this uh, as well. You know, we have our cloud platform is in five regions around the world. Um, and the main reason for that is just for data sovereignty, right? Some people don't want their data in a different region. And so I think that also companies have to figure out how they're going to, how they're going to think about that. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. I mean, you mentioned the automation of, you know, figuring out the compliance status. And I think there's something about standardization. One of the things is a, an observer of so many of the different, um, standards and, you know, requirements is that this huge overlap. So you, you end up doing essentially the same work over and over again, um, you know, with efficiencies because there is overlap and you can do mapping from one control set to another, et cetera. But it feels like surely we're at a point where we could just all agree, Hey, globally, let's just figure this thing out. And if you get that, then, you know, these are children certifications or control sets, et cetera. I don't know. Is that, am I just an idealist? I feel like I am. <laughs> right. I mean, to your point, I mean, the diversity of the, of the regulatory environment, even in the States, you know, uh, California is different than, you know, Massachusetts. And so there's some federal um, kind of umbrellas over that, but it, it is, uh, it would be great. I think, 
uh, I think we're a ways from that. You know, I think we'll, I think we'll continue to have, uh, you know, uh, some diversity there. This is, we're, we're recording video for the audience and uh, Lee's expression says more than words ever could uh, as I asked that, as I asked that question. Um, Let's pivot a little bit again, if that's okay. And, you know, one of the things I'm particularly interested in and um, had a conversation just before we started where I was actually talking to one of your customers who's having a a, a very excited and, and positive conversation around the outcomes that they were getting from SOAR. And, you know, it's one of the things that I think as an industry, we're, we're pinning a lot of hopes on um, in terms of stress relief and lowering mean time to detect and respond and just ultimately better risk management within organizations. You're in it. I'd love to get your take on maybe some of the misunderstandings because I definitely have a perspective on this, but I'd love to hear your take on maybe some of the, the bigger misunderstandings around the world of SEAM and, and SOAR in general. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think with SOAR, um, I think one of the big misunderstandings is like, hey, you've got to tackle this really big problem mm-hmm. and automate something really complex to get value, and you don't. You can, op- you can automate something really simple, right? So an example might be as alerts come into your SIM, you just want to get some enriched um, information around maybe threat, in- in threat intel, like you know, call out to a threat intel system and enrich that alert with threat intel. And so that's actually not a complicated, uh, you know, it's not complicated for the analyst really, but on a volume basis, if you can automate that, you know, three, four, five minute, exchange you have to have to go get that. I mean, that can, that can save a lot of time. So I think that's one of the, and there's, there's, you know, there's other examples, maybe um, uh, things like the quick, uh, if you want to automate, maybe uh, deprovisioning a user, it's not that complicated probably for an analyst to go off and deprovision that user in something like Active Directory or whatever they're, whatever they're using. But if you can just press a button, you know, again, that could save you 10, 15 minutes. So I think there's some really small wins there uh, that you can get. I think the other thing is that, um, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of customers that want to, you know, they, they start with their, the, the place to start, I think a lot of people do is they, they take their security operations center and find some things they want to, they want to automate. And I think that makes total sense. There's, again, there's a lot of analyst activity in the SOC, and so that's what people are focused on. But there are other places to apply this, right? So you could apply it. Uh, vulnerability remediation is an example um, where you could apply it. And I think, I think the, probably the last thing that's, that, that I'll say about this is that there's a lot of um, – there, there's maybe some misconception that, like, automation means that the, the end user loses control of the process, that's not true either. You know, we and, you know, the, the way that uh, at least our product is built, you can have human interactions there, mm-hmm. right? So you might want to tee up an approval or you might want to send a note to Slack that allows the analyst to say, you know, yes or no. And so you don't have to automate this whole thing end to end. It can, there can be multi-step workflows that again, can save you a lot of time. So, you know, at the end of the day, what we see with this technology is those that implement it, you know, they can save, um, they can, they can take, you know, maybe 20, 30 hours a week from an analyst and allow them to work on more strategic things. And uh, that's really the benefit. I think, you know, we gotta, we gotta continue to focus in this area. Cause I think it's, it's, you know, it's it allows small teams to act like big teams. 
Yeah, no, definitely get that. And um, I did a, we were talking before we started recording a, a webinar for ASA. It's a local security kind of association here, one of the national ones with uh, one of your colleagues, um, David Coleman. And the example that we ran through in that case was, you know, kind of responding to a phishing attack. And, you know, when you played out the potential steps for somebody to deal with that manually, you know, the estimate was 75 minutes. And it's a little bit of a finger in the air, depending on the organization. It's probably plus minus. Um, but with automation, and to your point, it's not like fully automated necessarily end to end, but you can bring that down to, you know, single digit minutes. And then as you scale that over, you know, days, weeks, months, all of a sudden that's a huge, huge impact to where, you know, FTE util is sitting within the organization and they get to do better work. And, and there's a human side to this in my mind where they're you're paying the, you know, very intelligent, smart people to do meaningful work. And then they spend so much time repetitive tasks where they know exactly what's coming next and the next steps, but it's not, well, I don't know, man, I don't, I don't do that job, but I'm suspecting on the hundredth time you've responded to a, you know, a phishing attack, it's not meaningful, exciting work because you know exactly what the playbook is and you kind of wish a machine would just come along and do it, do it for you. Yeah, no, I think you're, I mean, look, I think it is, it is about, because, you know, there's this question about like, hey, well, if we could automate everything, maybe we don't need security analysts. And that's just not true. I mean, there is so much work yeah. for cybersecurity professionals today that like that currently is never ending. And so if we automate a portion of it, that just means that that analyst, to your point, can go work on, you know, more, more impactful, more strategic work. And you're probably right. Like, look, job satisfaction probably increases too. Um, I would, I would think, uh, which I think, I think helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and retaining employees in, in sort of, uh, what, what's a very competitive market for talent, um, is anything, anything you can do, you know, beyond the foosball tables and pizza, you know, let's get, let's get automation going. Um, here's a, here's maybe a huge question. What do you think, um, in terms of like a security challenge that you don't think is getting the attention that it deserves? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I do think SOAR is one of them. I do. I think that there's, um, I mean, I guess, I guess more programmatically, like the, the organizations that really think about SOAR um, and automation in a, in a, in a progressive way, in a more um, evolutionary way, I think that we definitely, there, there's plenty of them out there, but I think we need to see more of that uh, and more focus on, you know, how do we, how do we think about our, you know, and I guess part of it is like, you have to sit down and think about your process and your workflow. And so you've got to actually do the work to understand that, which by the way, benefits the security program, because now you're documenting these things mm. and then you can figure out how to apply automation to it. So it takes a little bit of work up front, but the benefit that you get from that is substantial. Um, you know, like any other planning or management you get out of it, you know, because a lot, I mean, the challenge of the reality of it is, is we know like a lot of security pros are firefighting every day. And mm. so, you know, you kind of have to take a bit of a step back, say, okay, let's map out our workflows and our processes, build our playbooks, and then let's just run these more repeatedly. And then, of course, let's tweak them and 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 look at them and and uh, evolve them. And so, um, I think that's I think that's one area. I mean, I do think this notion of there, there's a lot of I think you know thought around cloud security, but I think the thing that we need to consider is like. Well, what is that? How how does that change the way that security? How does how does cloud infrastructure change the way security programs run, right? Because the nature of the cloud is that it's ephemeral, it's dynamic. I mean, it's very different 
than traditional infrastructure, even mm. even virtual infrastructure, because the ability both for a developer or an operator to quickly spin up an instance and deploy an application is you know instantaneous, um, and you know that obviously has its challenges. The other thing about it, though, that's great is that you could take that same attitude towards security. I mean, the cloud. If if you're deploying infrastructure on the cloud and you're building a program around that, back to the automation point, automation is pretty inherent in cloud infrastructure. So think about what we could do with cloud infrastructure and a well-run security program. I mean, you could really minimize the attack surface, right? You could really automate a lot of the remediation of, you know, somebody opens a storage bucket to the world. You can automate that immediately and you can build all of this in. And, and if you think about developer operations, engineering, and security engineering all working together on that program, on that, on that, you know, uh, approach, like it could be, we could, we could, you know, we could get ourselves into a situation where cloud infrastructure, uh, if run well and secured well, could be, could offer us more opportunity than legacy ever could have. Yeah. Interesting point. So here's where riffing on what you just said there. And, and probably specifically around the storage bucket stuff, you know, generally configuring and getting those things spun up is a million different configuration options. They have dependencies and, and sort of impact, impacts on each other. Do we get to a point where that automated spin up of those services becomes almost a com you know community-based thing where there's best practice and that best practice can be automated into the provisioning of services. So, you know, it's almost like open source best practice security through automation. Yeah, I think you I, absolutely. I think we'll see that. I think the other thing we'll see is, as as organizations look at as they use things like you know Terraform, um, cloud formation templates to deploy their infrastructure, you can look at all of that before it gets yeah. deployed, right? Yeah. And you could, in fact, it could be simulated of like, okay, well, what could happen if if mm -hmm. we deploy this environment, and then the 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 engineer would know, oh, I guess I can't do that. I need to change this setting. But to your point, yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, uh, the community is actually quite strong in this area generally. Mm -hmm. And so I think with things like Kubernetes, uh, mm -hmm. it can get stronger, right? And you get to a more standards-based approach. Um, and I think we, we definitely could see some really interesting uh, evolution there as well. So I think, I do think cloud security, well, it's talked about a lot. I think when you really think about the opportunity that it presents mm -hmm. the security industry, it's, it's actually quite... Um, it's quite, you could be quite optimistic about it. Yeah, there's work to be done. Don't get me wrong. But if you think about how we could automate that environment and what it could mean, you really could put a lot of guardrails and controls in place where, you know, you could still let your, your engineers innovate and you could still let them, you know, build while putting these things in place that would be much more automated, which, you know, we know when applications, when there's flaws found in applications going to fix those, is a lot of work after the fact. If you could do that before the fact, it would make a huge difference, right? Yep, no, definitely. And you almost like start getting into maybe digital twins, you know, where you, you build a digital twin in the environment to your your vulnerability analysis and and look at the implications and risk. Yeah, like, sorry, my, my brain is spinning now because you, you got me thinking, which is a good sign, you know? <laughs> but you can definitely do that. I mean, that's the yeah. benefit of it. Like, and again, because you can, you can spin this infrastructure up in, you know, mm -hmm. seconds or minutes, it doesn't, it's not like, oh, we got to go rack and set a new servers. It's, yep. you know, we can just, we can test this stuff really easily. So I think that is 
Um, if there's something to be optimistic about with that, I think, again, look, we have to stay ahead of the attackers and we've got to make sure that we're looking at those threats, but there's a real opportunity for defenders in this environment. Yeah. So last question, Lee, um, we, we give you a magic wand and you know, it's good for you. You get one spell, you get one wish um, or a genie in a lamp, whatever, whatever your chosen magic format is. What's your one wish for cybersecurity? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, there's, I probably talked a little bit about it here. I, I do think that there's, um, you know, the continued focus on innovating to solving the customer problem. Like, real, it's like, let's all really focus on, the, on how we solve this problem for the customer, the security professional, right? And I think that, you know, really focusing on, you know, really helping them, you know, do their jobs. Like, let's really think about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And, you know, that's definitely something we do at Rapid7 for sure. Um, and we, we, we talk a lot about it internally and with our customers. But my wish is like, we really need to understand that they're, because they're the ones on the front lines. They're the ones that have to deal with this every day, right? So for people like us that are a vendor, we just need to understand their problems deeply and really, really solve them. So I, I really want, you know, I hope that the rest of the industry follows that, frankly. Yeah, look, I, I feel like we've entered a, an age of collaboration, not to sound like I'm wrapping my arms around the world and with with love, but it does feel like that. I, I, I see myself having more and more conversations with other vendors. We talk at a technical integration level, how to serve customers level, and this sounds cheesy, and I know we're both in vendor land, so it's, you know, maybe people are a little bit suspicious, but that's the reality. The conversations we're having in the background is, hey, you guys in Rapid7 or Netscope or other other companies out there, like how do we work together? You know, these these customers, these organizations have problems. If we go in together, what can we do that we can't if we go in separately? But it feels like, um, yeah, I don't know. There there is that sense of, and I'm going to riff on your hope, um, but that sense of, like we really are all in this together. Like vendors, government, private enterprise, the customer. You know, and that's I think that's where ultimately we do our best work. Yeah, no, I think I think you're. I mean, look on the the ecosystem is and the security ecosystem is very diverse, and there's good reason for that, right? There's innovation uh, that needs to happen, and and new companies come along and solve new problems. But I think for um, for to your point, vendors like us, we have to be very open to that ecosystem, right? We have to be supportive of that ecosystem. Um, you know, we understand that our customers use different security solutions, and we need to we need to be able to integrate with them uh, for sure. And that is, you know, that's definitely a big focus for us. Uh, you know, regardless of what they have, we want to be able to work with it. So with that, Lee, um, we'll, we'll wrap here. Um, I really, really appreciate uh, you taking the time. What It is late for you there, I'm guessing, because it's very dark outside in, in the background there. That's okay. It's been great. I, I appreciate it. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you and really uh, appreciate the insights. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks so much to Lee for that conversation. Great to catch up with him. And as always, thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. Jump into our back catalog of episodes and like, subscribe, and leave us a review. For now, I look forward to catching you on the next episode.